Welcome to Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. stories often have a point at which there is a big revelation, or as people are wont to say these days, a big reveal. A revealing of the full scope of the hero's glory and strength. Think about when Superman emerges from the phone booth, or Batman gets into his bat outfit in his souped-up Batmobile. At that point, we know that stuff's about to get real. The story told in Matthew is a sort of hero story albeit one in which the hero does many things opposite of what a hero would have done in normal ancient Mediterranean hero stories, which is, of course, sort of the whole point. But like in many hero stories, there's a point in the story where Jesus' glory is revealed. That seems to be the function of the transfiguration scene. This scene occurs at just about the midway point in the story, when Jesus has revealed that he is headed for a showdown in Jerusalem. Up until now, although he has debated his opponents, he has also evaded them, so as to avoid capture. But from here on out, he will make no more evasive maneuvers. But rather, he will take the fight to the enemy, marching south to Jerusalem. He will continue to teach along the way, but his teaching will be more bold and direct. It is as if Jesus in the transfiguration, is emerging from his phone booth in all of his glory. But this is revealed only to three disciples and to the audience of the story. To most of the other characters in the story, his full glory remains hidden. To most of the other characters in the story, he's the same old dude he's always been. But the audience of the story knows that dude is ready for action. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 44 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin with Matthew 17, 1-8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and his brother John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, we will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, They saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Jesus reveals himself in all of his glory to his three disciples, 
and to us, the audience. There's a lot of symbolic imagery in this revelatory scene, and one important part of that is the revealing of Jesus as the Son of God. Of course, this is not the first time that's been revealed. In fact, Simon Peter just proclaimed that in the last scene. But if we review the unfolding in the story of this revelation of Jesus as the Son of God, it helps us understand what is happening in this scene. The first time that we get a notion that Jesus is the Son of God is in chapter 1, when he is born from a union of Mary and the Holy Spirit. While the title is not used, the nature of the birth strongly implies that he is a Son of God or the Son of God. But we don't get the actual declaration that Jesus is the Son of God until the baptism of Jesus. And the declaration is almost verbatim the declaration in this transfiguration scene. A voice says, This is my Son, the Beloved. With Him I am well pleased. The only differences are that the voice in chapter 3 comes from heaven, whereas the voice here in chapter 17 comes from the cloud. And here in chapter 17, the voice adds one simple instruction, which I will come back to. So, the baptism and the transfiguration scenes are connected. Another scene that seems to be connected to this one is the temptation scene in chapter 4, which is the next time, after the baptism, that Jesus is sort of revealed to be the Son of God. That is the only other scene in which Jesus goes up on a high mountain. There are other mountain scenes, but only two scenes, the third temptation and the transfiguration scenes, take place on high mountains. And in the larger temptation passage, Jesus is repeatedly challenged to prove that he is Son of God. And after that, Jesus is recognized as Son of God by demons, and then eventually by his disciples, which leads us to this scene, the scene of the transfiguration. So the sequence of revelation that involves the actual declaration of Jesus as the Son of God is the baptism, the temptation, followed by demons, then humans, and then the transfiguration. This slow revelation is in keeping with apocalypticism. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, apocalypticism is about revealing. That's what apocalypsis, the Greek word, means. It means revelation or a revealing, or as the young people like to say these days, a reveal. In apocalyptic literature, God's judgment on the oppressive regimes of the empires is being revealed, as is the new society of justice that will replace those oppressive regimes. For example, in 2nd Baruch, a Jewish apocalyptic work roughly contemporary with Matthew, we get a passage in chapter 29 about the revealing of the Messiah that results in a world where all people are fed. I'll read verses 3, 5, and 6. And it shall come to pass, when all is accomplished that was to come to pass in those parts, that the Messiah shall then begin to be revealed. The earth shall also yield its fruit ten thousandfold, and on each vine there shall be a thousand branches, and each branch shall produce a thousand clusters, and each cluster produce a thousand grapes, and each grape produce a core of wine, and those who have hungered shall rejoice. Moreover, 
also they shall behold marvels every day. So this is very similar to what is happening in Matthew. The Messiah, in this case the Son of God, is being revealed to bring God's new society on earth as it is in heaven. And, of course, the title Son of God is a messianic title because the Messiah was expected to be a king, probably of the line of David, and the title Son of God was used for kings and emperors in that part of the ancient world, both Israelite and Greco-Roman. So Jesus is the peasant king, Messiah, that will, in some way, in some sense, overthrow the imperial and upper-class kings to initiate the new society of justice for all people. But while this is being revealed, it is only revealed to a few, to the three disciples that go with Jesus up the mountain, and of course, to us, the audience of the story. By the way, I use the word audience and not reader because most people in antiquity could not read, so most people would have the story read to them by someone who could read, usually someone with scribal training, and usually in groups and gatherings, hence the word audience. If I'm speaking of the modern reader, modern audience, I also often use the term reader. But for antiquity, I use the term audience. So Jesus is revealed in all of his glory, but only to a few. Only those in the know, us and those three disciples, are in on this secret. This is very much the way of apocalypticism. The secrecy signals the subversiveness of this whole thing. The message and the power of the new society continue to be hidden from the powers that be, from the rulers of this world. This continues to be an underground movement that will sneak up on the old society to replace it through the alternative communities and ecclesias, the popular assemblies of the new society. get to all that other imagery in this passage, the mountain, the cloud, the actual transfiguration. First of all, there is a lot of Moses imagery, which continues the theme of a second exodus from an oppressive empire. In the book of Exodus, when Moses ascends the mountain to receive the law, he takes three of his inner circle with him, plus 70 elders. Matthew brushes aside the number 70, but has Jesus take three disciples up a mountain. In both Exodus and Matthew, a cloud descends on the mountain. In Exodus, the cloud descends for six days. In Matthew, they ascend the mountain six days later. The text doesn't tell us what the six days later is in reference to, which further signals that this detail is included solely to evoke the Exodus event. Both Moses in Exodus and Jesus in Matthew have shining faces and skin as a result of this experience. God speaks from the cloud in both texts. In Exodus, Moses receives the law or instruction for the new Israelite nation. 
In Matthew, God says, listen to Jesus, meaning listen to his instruction, his teaching for the new society. In both texts, the bystanders are afraid. In the Exodus text, God gives instructions for building the tabernacle or tent of meeting. In Matthew, Peter wants to erect three tents or tabernacles. It's the same Greek word as used in the ancient Greek text of Exodus. And in addition to all of that, Philo, a Jewish writer in Alexandria, Egypt, whose life overlapped with that of Jesus, wrote an account of the life of Moses in which he used the word transfigured. Same Greek word as in Matthew. Philo wrote his work in Greek. He used the word transfigured to describe what happened to Moses on the mountain. And of course, Moses is one of the two people that suddenly appears and talks with Jesus on the mountain in Matthew. So this scene in Matthew is written to evoke this Exodus theme. Two people appear and talk with Jesus. One is Moses. The other person is Elijah. We've seen Elijah imagery already in this story. In the ancient canon of Israel, Elijah also has a mountaintop experience. In fact, 1 Kings 19 identifies the mountain as Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, the mountain on which Moses ascends to receive the law in Exodus. Elijah's mountaintop experience in 1 Kings plays much the same role as Jesus' mountaintop experience does in Matthew. Just as Jesus no longer evades capture after his mountaintop experience, the transfiguration, and starts heading for his final showdown in Jerusalem, Elijah goes to Mount Horeb to evade capture by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, the reigning monarchs in Israel, but he receives his inspiration and power there on the mountain to go and confront them. And speaking of that, Moses actually has two mountaintop experiences on that same mountain. Well, actually three, because he goes up the mountain twice to receive the law. But the first mountaintop experience is when he encounters the burning bush. That experience changes him from being a fugitive from the wrath of the king of Egypt to a deliverer who goes to confront the king. So for all three figures, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, the mountaintop experience is the moment they stop running and start taking the battle to the oppressive authority. It is the moment in the story that they emerge from their phone booths and all their glory to take on the evil villain. For Moses and Elijah, that means defeating the enemy, the evil villain, through violence. For Jesus, however, it means defeating the enemy through the cross. Now, you may have noticed that the tent or tabernacle element in the story in Matthew actually departs from the same theme in Exodus. Whereas Moses receives instructions on building the tabernacle, Peter wants to build three of them, but then gets cut off by the voice coming from the cloud, which says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, there is no need for tabernacles or temples. The tabernacle 
was the proto-temple. We modern readers tend to find it funny or odd that Peter wants to erect three tabernacles. But building a shrine, altar, or tabernacle, or temple at the spot where a vision or dream has transpired was common in antiquity. And Jesus will call this a vision in verse 9. Building a shrine, altar, or tabernacle, or temple at the spot where a vision or dream has transpired was common in antiquity both in Jewish and Greco-Roman texts. In the Bible, Jacob responds to the dream of the ladder reaching to heaven by setting up a sacred pillar, pouring oil on it, and making a vow. He calls the place Bethel, house of God, which becomes an important sanctuary in Israel. Also, in Genesis 26, 23-25, Isaac has a dream vision where God appears reiterating the promise that he made to Abraham. In response, Isaac builds an altar. But here in our Matthew text, on this mountain, no altar, tabernacle, or temple will be built. That is the point of having Peter bring it up, only to be cut off by the voice from the cloud. The reason is that this movement for a new society has no need of temples or sacrificial altars. The message of the movement, the teaching of Jesus, is what is important, which is why when Peter speaks of erecting tabernacles, the voice cuts him off, admonishing the disciples to listen to Jesus. Matthew was written after the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed, and all Jews were having to figure out how to live without a temple. It is in this context that we get a story about Yohanan ben Zakkai, a leading rabbi in the post-temple period. The story goes, Once Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai was leaving Jerusalem, and Rabbi Yehoshua was following him, and saw the temple destroyed. Rabbi Yehoshua said, Woe to us that it is destroyed, a place where the Jewish nation's sins are atoned. Ben Zakkai answered, My son, do not feel bad. We have one atonement like it, and which is that? It is acts of loving kindness. For as it says, For I desire loving kindness and not sacrifices. Hosea 6.6 That's a famous story of the post-temple period that provided a way forward for the Jewish people as a nation without a temple. But the destruction of the Jerusalem temple is not the reason that Jesus and Matthew rejects temples. In the story, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem has not happened yet. Jesus rejects temples, at least as anything but houses of prayer. He rejects temples with priests and sacrificial systems wherever they are, whether in Caesarea Philippi or in Jerusalem or on this mountain, because they are institutions by which the ruling class maintains its control over the people by requiring sacrifices and other rituals to maintain or recover purity. This text in Matthew 17 of the Transfiguration implies for the audience hearing it at a time when the Jerusalem temple has been destroyed that no new temples or sacrificial altars need be erected. The Jerusalem temple does not need to be replaced. The teaching of Jesus, the teaching about the new society, is sufficient for the new society. Unlike the old, it needs no temples, priests, or sacrificial systems. 
In this way, the early Christians, who were mostly Jewish, were like other Jews in the post-temple period. The larger Jewish community was rethinking how to live without a temple and was organizing life around the law of Israel, the Torah, especially as exemplified by acts of loving-kindness, as Yohanan ben Zakkai said when he quoted Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, or acts of loving-kindness, not sacrifice. In Matthew, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 twice. The new society emerging in the movement around Jesus will not center around a temple or temples, as the old society does. It will center around the teaching of Jesus. The voice says, listen to him. So the movement is pointed toward the teaching of Jesus. Now, the teaching is not systematic or even comprehensive in the way that a full law code is. It seems to lay out general principles, often through stories or parables. And the most recent teaching is the teaching that to defeat the empire, Jesus and his followers must go the way of the cross. That is the newest, most recent teaching that Jesus has given. It is the one that Peter had a hard time listening to. And now the voice tells Peter and the other two disciples to listen to it. Jesus is dressed in white. In the book of Revelation, an early church writing that was written around the same time as Matthew, white robes are the robes of martyrs. This scene is the revealing of Jesus' glory. And Jesus has just said in the last episode that his coming in glory will be at the cross. That is the sort of teaching that the new society will center around. Jesus in this transfiguration scene is emerging from his phone booth like Clark Kent emerging as Superman. But his superpower is not the power of violence, but the transforming power of martyrdom. The transforming power of the cross. mountain that Jesus and his three disciples ascend does not have a name. It seems to be in Galilee, because in the story they are still in Galilee. But this high mountain has no name. The temple in Jerusalem was on Mount Zion. Temples were often on mountains with names, but here Jesus is declared Son of God on a mountain with no name, somewhere in Galilee, Galilee of the nations. This is right after being in the region of Caesarea Philippi, Gentile territory. At the end of the story, the resurrected Jesus will meet one last time with his disciples on an unnamed mountain in Galilee. They could build a temple there, but this movement is not about temples or special mountains. All mountains are special. All people are temples. All communities are chosen. And that is the teaching that they are to listen to. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode was provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Thanks for listening. If you want to support this podcast, there are several ways you can do that. You can spread the word, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your mail carrier, tell your dog, tell your neighbor's dog. You can tell your cat, but your cat probably won't care. That's just the way they are. You can give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast that lets you do that. 
You can also contribute financially. Just send the money through PayPal to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. You can also send questions, comments, words of encouragement, and secret hopes of liberation that the Holy Spirit has whispered in your ear to be shouted from the rooftops. You can send all of that to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been Episode 44 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.